Happy Saturday. It's July 8th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors who have had a fabulous July 4th holiday weekend, and we are back to work, Michael. Back to work. The fireworks continue here. No, we have a lot. I mean, that being said, there was a fair amount of drama in the issue this week, and we're going to get into all of it. Yeah, we've got Rich Cohen, who's here to tell us about the time he was sent to Woody Creek, Colorado, to retrieve the godfather of Gonzo, Hunter S. Thompson. And then, speaking of writers, many of you may know the book by Jackie Collins, Hollywood Wives, which skewered the Beverly Hills elite and sold more than 15 million copies. Now... On its 40th anniversary, Jackie Collins' daughter, Rory, will join us to tell us what she learned about life from her powerhouse mother. And finally, Ravi Samaya has the incredible story of a doctor who used medical technology to reveal secrets of demonic possession. But did he unleash a deadly curse in the process? It's a wild story you will want to hear. So... Where would you like to begin? Well, I think we need to get Rich Cohen on here because who else has had such intimate knowledge of Hunter S. Thompson and has lived to tell the tale? Okay, the last time we talked to Rich Cohen, he was here to talk about the immense only flight on United Airlines during the 1960s. That was a moment. He's covered many mysteries, many murders, lots of divorces, and lots of juice for us. And now he is here to tell us all about something probably equally salacious. Welcome, Rich Cohen. Okay, Rich, in the fall of 2004, Jan Wenner, the co-founder and editor of Rolling Stone, came to you with a suspicious but intriguing assignment. What was that exactly? Well, he wanted me to go interview Hunter S. Thompson. Now, Hunter S. Thompson has sort of been the brand name and kind of built Rolling Stone, gave it its identity, and had been very close to Jan for a lot of years. And they'd sort of fallen out. And Hunter was writing for other magazines, specifically ESPN and Vanity Fair. And at the time, I sort of thought, well, Jan is doing this thing where he can't get Hunter in the magazine by his own byline. So he'll get him in secondhand through me writing about him. But I think it was more complicated than that. I think Jan was sending me out as a sort of an emissary to try to bring Hunter back into the fold. And what did you encounter, Rick, when you set off on this assignment? Well, I'd never been one of the Hunter S. Thompson freaks growing up. I mean, I was aware of him and I was aware of Rolling Stone. But the people who were really, really into him, they were too into him. From They were like fanatics, and I couldn't go with them. I'm thinking specifically of the kid who lived across the street from me. But I was very aware of the whole Woody Creek, Aspen, Hunter thing, if only from the movie Where the Buffalo Roam with Bill Murray. And Bill Murray, I was very into. And I'd read those stories. I'd read Fear and Loathing, and I'd done all that. So it was kind of entering a place that you'd, you'd imagine, which was Hunter Thompson's house which was like the fortress of solitude in some way. It was like this kind of empire in your own mind. So it's Aspen off season, which is very kind of cool because it's beautiful and empty. And it was the fall and get to his house. And it, like a lot of these places, like if you ever been to Graceland, you get there and it's like, oh, it's like a suburban house. Expected to be like Versailles. And it's like a rich house in the suburbs. It's not a German castle or the castle in Young Frankenstein, which is kind of what you're expecting. So it's just kind of a regular house, mid-century house, a little bit outside, a few minutes outside Aspen, up on a hill that looks like it hadn't been changed very much. And it was interesting, like the editor who actually was talking to at the time was Will Dana, who was at Rolling Stone. And Will Dana really wanted to know what books were in Hunter's bookshelves. That was like an obsession of his. So it was interesting because if you're a writer, like at a hundred level, everybody sends you their books. And it was like his whole bookshelf was like every book he'd received in 1977, none before, none after. So it was this little like time capsule of 
1977 hardbacks that publicists are trying to move. And then I should say that when I got there, he was like nowhere around. I mean, he was there, he was asleep, and he kind of didn't wake up until dusk. He was very nocturnal. And when he woke up, he didn't, I'm now more aware of this because now it's like 20 years have gone by and I'm older. So I'm more aware of what was going on, which is he didn't just wake up. There was like, it was like a slow process. It took him probably, seemed like four hours and a lot of drinking and drug use to reach a mental state that you could call awake. So he wasn't exactly thrilled to see you. No, he was thrilled. to. See. I had a very good greeting from him. He was super nice. And he was trying to almost recruit me to his side. So he was trying to get me to, one thing he wanted me to do was he owed a story to an editor and he was trying to get me to write it for him. That was a big thing because he didn't want to write it. So there was a lot of him just trying to get me to write down his story. But he was nervous about why Jan had sent me. And it just so happened we also had the same book publisher, which was David Rosenthal, who used to be an editor of Rolling Stone, actually, at Simon & Schuster, I think. And David Rosenthal had called him and sort of given me a good, I didn't even ask him to do this, but he just sort of said, this is somebody that you'll like and that you'll get along with. So, and before I even went out, I think I'd He's one of these guys, I met a lot of people like this in my life who are kind of semi-reclusive. And what they do is they talk on the phone for hours and hours and hours. You can't really get them off the phone if you talk to them. And I think I'd already had some of those conversations with him before I went out there. So I think it was more like he was trying to recruit me to his side as opposed to Jan's side. He's going to get me to switch armies, if you will. And how did you handle that? Like anything else, any other social situation, which is to kind of laugh it off and hang out and not really get involved in those kind of intense work conversations with him and just sort of be with him and try to not be with him all the time because he wanted me to sort of, I was out there for like about a week and he wanted me to kind of stay at his house 24 hours a day and sleep in his basement, which was something I really, really, really didn't want to do. So it was like the kind of friend that won't let you leave a little bit. And so it was trying to create space for myself to go back and go back to Aspen where I had a hotel room and sleep. He also gave you a rather curious assignment now. He tried to pass off some work onto you. Yeah, as I was saying, he tried to get me, he owed a story in New York. I don't remember exactly what the story was and he wasn't very interested in it, but he'd agreed and he probably been paid because money was always a thing. So he'd probably taken money to write the story, didn't feel like writing it. And he tried to get me to write it. And we'd like sort of argue about it. Like he just tried to, I have a big brother and a big sister and they had tried to get me to do stuff. So I'm very familiar with that dynamic of an older person with more presence in the world trying to get you to do stuff you don't want to do. And I'm very good at it, out of uh, not pissing that person off, but not doing it. I would, did not want to write his story for him. And obviously it wouldn't have been his story if I wrote it. So, but it was kind of a funny, weird, unexpected thing that happened on that visit. You also had a rather curious last night together in which you tried to match him drink for drink. How did that go? Well, I was a lot younger than him. I don't think now I could do it. And he was doing a lot more than drinking. He'd taken a whole bunch of pills and stuff, which I hadn't done. So I had an advantage. But he sort of seemed permanently inebriated. So there's no way I, unless he passed out, I was just a matter of trying to keep up with him, which I was basically able to do. But he got this chartreuse, which is like this French liqueur from the Alps made by monks. And he was very excited about it. I wanted to drink it. And I, it's not really something you want to pound, put it that way. So there was a disgusting element to it. But then it got kind of crazy where Ralph Steadman, who did all the drawings, the famous drawings from Fear and Loathing, showed up. And the sheriff of Aspen showed up and they were kind of all running around and dancing around to music. And Hunter had a gun, a shotgun that he was waving around. And this is just a few weeks before he killed himself. So I don't know. I can't remember how he killed himself right off the top of my head, but maybe with the same gun. And 
I was afraid of being, of him shooting somebody, actually, of him maybe shooting me by accident or shooting himself. There's a guy, drunk guy, had had like a half bottle of chartreuse and a ton of pills dancing around to some 70s song with a shotgun. So I was just thinking about the headline, like what it'd be like to be killed in Woody Creek in Aspen by uh, Hunter Thompson. So, but the sheriff kept saying, it's okay, I'm the safety officer. Everything's okay here. I'm the safety officer. So I just had to, re- I had to rely on that. Rich, like you, maybe it's our Chicago roots, I don't know, but I've always had, had a long time been a skeptic of the cult of Hunter S. Thompson and that it grew up around him and especially young writers when we were coming up and like they just sort of like worshipped at that altar. But like you, as you note in your essay this week, I then discovered it and separated the acolytes from the source. For people who haven't read Fear and Loathing or his other book, tell us about why this work matters and what you find in it, why people should still read it. Well, first of all, I think that there's like the actual writing and then there's like the lifestyle portrayed. And the people who tend to really like him tend to fall in love with the lifestyle. And the lifestyle isn't real. It's a character. And I, it's like a, a literary character he created to narrate these stories and what's writing. And so I think that what the bad thing that happened to Hunter is people sort of demanded the character, which wasn't really real. And he had felt like he had to play that and become that. And that put him on this 30-year weird thing where he became a celebrity and did all this stuff. And I think that would have been better for him if he was a, more of a dick to people. And like when they came to his house and they wanted to hang out and party, he said, you, I'm working. But he really became public in that way. And the thing that people fell in love with about his work wasn't really what was great about it. What was great about it was the writing. And if you know that the person that he worshipped as a writer was F. Scott Fitzgerald and that he retyped The Great Gatsby just so he could sort of feel the way the sentences worked. Then you kind of get a sense of like what was great about him and what was he tuned into, which is he was a very lyrical writer and he had a real sense of American vernacular, American language and American melancholy. And when I went back and to me, like the first book before he became a persona was Hell's Angels, which is just a great, maybe his best book. And it's just a book of reporting about the Hell's Angels. And he's like Tom Wolfe in that. And they were very close, I think, in that he was plugged in to the moment and to the zeitgeist, and he expressed it in vernacular American language. And if you go back and read Fear and Loathing after you read Hell's Angels, you see that Fear and Loathing is a really sad book. It's the death of the 60s, It's and it's kind of an epilogue to Hell's Angels. So I think what's great about him is that he understood America. He understood what was sort of sad about his American moment, and he was a really fine, fine reporter and writer. And I think that in order to say what he wanted to say, he created this character who could be right in the center of that world. And then he became trapped in that character. That was always my sense of what happened to him. But I think if you sort of, it's like the Grateful Dead. Like I never liked the Grateful Dead because I just couldn't, it was like the Grateful Dead people I knew was a hundred percent or nothing. And I go to those concerts in Alpine Valley which Michael will know. And it was like all the people dancing in the parking lot and selling stuff out of the back cars. I, wanted, I didn't want anything to do with it. But when I actually got older and could just listen to the music, I realized, yeah, they're a great, great band. And that's like with Hunter. I didn't want anything to do with the cult of Hunter as a high school kid. But when I went back as a writer and read him as a writer, I realized how great he is. And then a lot of the people, including the kid across the street, they missed what was great about him, which was the thing that attracted them, which was his tone 
as a writer. That's beautifully said. And I think it's great to reclaim him from all the freaks and instead focus on the voice that you know. I won't spoil, but I encourage everyone to read your essays because how you end it and the scene and what the words from him there are very, I think, speak perfectly to the moment that you talk about. Well, it was this very lucky experience I had, and I kind of felt blessed by it. And spending time with him and him reading his own work to me and some of his best work. And of course, it's one of those things that at the time I was just trying to navigate it. And I didn't really appreciate how great it was probably until a few years later. So just a lucky thing that happened. Well, Rich, thank you so much for a great story and for speaking with us here about it today. Thanks. Terrific piece, Rich. Okay, have a great weekend, you guys. Thanks, Rich. Bye. Bye. That is a story, Michael, that only Rich could tell. Yeah, I'm surprised he emerged unscathed chemically, but... It's all it's a fantastic story. I encourage everyone to read it in this week's issue because it's loaded with fantastic details and it's a great look inside what it's like to be in that cabin up there in Colorado. Yeah, no kidding. All right. Well, next, shall we go to Jackie Collins? Why not? Talk about crazy lives. This is one of the best ones, right? Yes, indeed. So 40 years after the publication of Jackie Collins' Hollywood Wives, her daughter Rory is here to tell us all about the power of these books and the way that her mother insisted on having fun at all costs. Rory's here to talk about the 40th anniversary edition of Hollywood Wives by her mother, Jackie Collins, which is coming out on July 11th. Welcome, Rory. Okay, so Rory Green, we are so happy to have you here to talk about this fabulous book. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Rory, let's go back to 1983. You were 13 years old and your mother published her ninth novel. What was it? The book was Hollywood Wives. And as you said, it was published in 1983. Yeah, and I was it was the summer I was turning 14. And this is a book that Michael and I have read more times than we're willing to admit. What was your life like? Like, how did things change for you when that book came out when you were a teenager? I would say it wasn't necessarily when the book came out that things changed for us. We had moved to L.A. from London in 1981 My mother was very ambitious. She knew exactly what she wanted for her career. And her writing was really evolving at that point. And we spent a lot of time in LA. We had lots of friends there. So we'd spend all the summers in LA. And she'd started, she was always like hiding in plain sight. She'd started going to all the Hollywood parties and observing this certain breed of woman who she was fascinated by and the dynamics between them and their husbands. And she just knew that she was going to write a book about them. And she just knew that she actually had to be living in LA in order to really write that book. And so I would say our life really changed when we moved a couple of years prior to that. And then she started doing her research, which is what she loved to do. She always had a notebook in her purse. She would be taking notes. She'd go to parties or restaurants. She'd be picking up snippets of dialogue. She was fascinated by character. And this is a book that in the ensuing 40 years, it's had so much conversation centered around it. Was it talked about in Los Angeles in the 1980s in the way that we imagine it would be? I mean, this was obviously many years before social media and the like, but what was sort of the chatter happening around this book while you were growing up? Yeah. Well, as I said, when I was, I didn't realize about any of the chatter. Our mother was very good at keeping her life very compartmentalized. So she really kind of kept our life quite normalized. I think it was very different. Obviously, it was well before social media. So she was able to really separate her family life from her professional life. But looking back, and also particularly actually after she died, and we looked through her archive and all the letters she received, there was a fabulous letter from her agent at the time, Morton Janklow, and their relationship had so much longevity. He was a huge supporter of her. He was one of the most renowned agents of the time. And he took a risk by, and that was the first book they did together. And he took a risk, but he read the manuscript and he was just completely on board. He knew that it was going to be successful. But I remember finding a letter from him saying, 
that everywhere he went, he saw the book and he would send, he would take pictures, obviously long before you could tag people, he'd take pictures and print them out and send them to her whenever he went on vacation, whenever he was at the Beverly Hills Hotel, everybody was reading Hollywood Wives. Everybody had a copy of it in their hand. And also it was at the airports, we all know, but people could never put the book down. They'd go on a 10 hour flight and by the time the flight was finished, they'd finish the book. You write in your story about what she was like as a mother and her more domestic side. Tell us about what she was like at home. People are very surprised by this, but she was quite normal at home. From my perspective, she was very down to earth. And I know people find that hard to believe. We've had fans say, oh, did she, when she wrote, did she come in wearing her Louboutins and her diamonds? But she had her seasons. And so she had a season when she was writing and she had a season when she was promoting. And her promotional season was very much her kind of Jackie Collins persona. There's an amazing documentary that was made about her. It was released in 2016 called Lady Boss, The Jackie Collins Story. It's on Netflix. And it really shows the different sides of her, but also how she kind of had to almost create this persona in order to move out into her professional world. At home, she was just, to me, she was just like our mom. She was, as I said, she cooked, she was doing the laundry. She was super fun. She was very engaged. She loved children. We always had a a dog and we just grew up. Of course, I knew she was famous. And I knew when we went out to restaurants or when we went out to buy clothes, people would recognize her and people would stop her. But I wouldn't say that her fame ever really impacted our family life. Rory, you say in the story that she gave you the gift of voice, not of her voice, because her voice was so uniquely her own, but of yours. How did she do that for you? I think just by example, really, Ashley, because she was just living that out. She was really living her truth. She was unafraid. She was unapologetic. She was absolutely outraged by the double standard in terms of how men were treated versus how women were treated and all the respect men received, all the power they received. And she was really fascinated. She wanted to grapple with that both in her personal life, but also in her writing. And you see that coming through her characters. She wanted to explore how women could take on masculine behaviors. And she did that herself. And I think from my point of view as a young woman, I just saw her speaking her truth. I saw her fully expressing herself and never holding back. And so that was very empowering for my sisters and myself. She died eight years ago and everyone's life has changed as a result of that. But how do you think that her legacy has been reevaluated over the years? Well, I think particularly with the release of the documentary, I think people were very surprised. And she has a huge legion of fans. I mean, just millions of people read her books over the years. And Hollywood Wives is the one that a lot of people know about. But she wrote 31 novels from 1968 all the way through. She was still writing three weeks before she died. She wrote the last book in her Sant'Angelo series. I always say that she sort of wrote her ending. I think she knew in some ways exactly how it was going to end. But I think her legacy has continued because her fans are still, we get so many stories from people who are rereading her books. We hear stories from people who have only ever read Jackie Collins, who have never read any other authors because they think nobody compares. And I think that she is being evaluated in terms of her impact impact, her cultural impact. So often when she, and and again, this is explored in the documentary, which is fascinating. So often during her time when she was alive, she was dismissed as authors of popular fiction often are, particularly she's now categorized as romantic fiction and romantic fiction is being reevaluated as well. But she was dismissed, often referred to as trashy novels, as I talk about in the piece that I wrote as a guilty pleasure, was something to almost be embarrassed about that you were reading Jackie Collins. But my point is, is that she was not embarrassing at all. She made huge strides for female authors, for her readers. She really inspired so many of her readers. And I do think she's being reevaluated now. We're being contacted by people who are getting PhDs and are doing a thesis on the 
impact of her work. So I feel like she's getting the credit that she truly deserves. And perhaps she never got quite that when she was alive. I love what you say, because you really recontextualize her as such a transformative writer in this mid-century span from the 60s into the 80s. And I think, especially if you've got a detail in there, because you mentioned earlier, going through your mother's effects after she died and finding a letter from a well-known pornographer named Larry Flint, who objectified women his whole career. And what does he say to your mother? I mean, if you can tell that story, it's a fantastic story. Yeah. I mean, it's an insane story. And again, that was happening when I was a teenager. There was Larry Flint, as we know, was a widely known pornographer. He published, he was the distributor of a magazine. It was a pornographic magazine. I believe it was Italian. I can't remember the name of it now. Anyway, a, a picture of a nude woman was published in that magazine and it was stated that it was our mother, that the picture was of her. And of course it wasn't. And it was absolutely mortifying to her because I guess this was back in the 80s. It was a magazine that people that she knew had seen or had heard about were publishing. Again, we found letters from some agents and publishers saying, oh, hey, we saw that picture of you in the magazine. She was outraged to her. It was the epitome of, I think she dealt with objectification by men her entire life since she was a very young woman. So she went to court and she sued the magazine to stop the distribution. And there was a big court case. She was awarded, I didn't write about this because it's a much longer story. It's a fascinating story. She was awarded $40 million. She never saw any of it, of course, but I think it was the highest, I can't remember, it was like the highest amount ever awarded in that particular type of case. The case was appealed and she ended up seeing a fraction, if any, of that money. But when we were going through her things after she died, we found a letter from Larry Flint and it was written in 1980. I think it was maybe around the same year that Hollywood Wives was written, 1983. And the letter opened up with, get off your high horse, you f***. That's how the letter. And basically it was a terrifyingly threatening letter. And I can't even imagine what that was like, basically saying, how dare you? Because I think she'd been on talk show hosts talking about the case, about how proud she was of being awarded that amount. She felt that it wasn't just for her, that she felt that that was something for all women, the fact that she'd been able to push and really stand her sacred ground and stand against this man who was so threatening and so powerful. And also his main goal was objectification of women. Well, Rory, thank you so much, not only for your great story, but for sharing it with us here. And our last question for you is we all have a favorite Jackie Collins novel. What is yours? Oh my gosh. I get that question all the time. It's such a difficult one for me. I really, there's so many that there's an amazing one called Lovers and Gamblers. And it was written in 1975. We've sold the rights for that to become a TV show, which we're so excited about because that's kind of an epic one about a rock star and, and he travels to the Amazon jungle and there's all sorts of wonderful, wild things in it. But I would say my personal favorite is Chances, which is the beginning of the Sant'Angelo series where she introduces the character of Lucky Sant'Angelo, who is like her alter ego and a fabulous character who then spanned over nine books and as I said, was the last character that she wrote about in the weeks before she died. She was beloved by fans, but also by our mother. So I would say, yeah, has to be chances. It's a great entry to Jackie Collins. Thank you so much, Rory. Have a great week. Thank you, Rory. Thank you both for having me. Thank you very much. Ashley, did you read the book? Of course I read the book, Michael. It's a classic in the canon. It's perfect summer reading. Perfect summer reading. Put a poolside beach in your beach bag. I mean, right? It's a sizzler. Yeah. I mean, as Rory says, her mother might have coined the term guilty pleasure, but I don't find any guilt in this pleasure at all. To me, it is just pure joy. Well, this next story is less about joy than it is about evil and Satan. 
We have an eye-popping story here from our correspondent, Ravi Sumaya. It is a fantastic story in this week's issue about a doctor in Mexico City who used medical technology to reveal the secrets of demonic possession. Ravi is a New York-based writer and editor. His book, The Golden Thread, about the mysterious death of Doc Hammarskjöld, is available now. Welcome, Ravi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this is a strange story. It starts for you in early 2011 in Mexico City. Tell us about Dr. Vasquez, who was an emergency surgeon at a hospital there at the time. So the story started for me because I found this weird medical paper during the pandemic, which, as I'm sure you guys recall and or are still living, was a time of great fear and therefore great superstition. And it kind of described an exorcism done under laboratory conditions, which, of course, those things oxymorons. And when I dug into it, I found that the guy behind it was this surgeon called Jose Luis Mosco Vasquez. And he is an emergency surgeon who had sort of spent a lot of time dealing with the fallout of cartel violence in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Mexico City. He was a pioneer in laparoscopic surgery, which is basically surgery using tools that you operate from a distance and robotic surgery. He was also a pioneer in using virtual reality as an anesthetic. At a certain point in 2016, at the sort of height of cartel violence, he decided he wanted to find a woman who was demonically possessed and conduct an exorcism in an MRI scanner and see if he could prove the existence of God. I've got to say, I love the creative thinking. How exactly was he going to go about proving this? Well, his view was if you could see, I don't know how much you guys know about MRI scanners, but basically they show as much as we can see the inner workings of the brain. And so the idea is that eventually you might be able to map the brain and say, okay, well, fear exists in this part of the brain or love exists in this part of the brain. It's sort of the thing that Malcolm Gladwell and Jonah Lehrer made careers on, is sort of interpreting this means of looking at the human mind. And so his idea was, if you can see a demon in the mind, if you can see what a possessed person's mind looks like, and then if you can watch an exorcism and see the healing light of the Holy Spirit sort of imbue her mind and chase the demon out, then in some sense, you've proven the existence of good and evil, and you've sort of mapped where they are in the human mind. And who were the willing participants in this adventure? So the main participant was one woman who we're not naming because she hasn't given us her permission to name her. But she was 29 years old, and she had been possessed for many, many years. She'd undergone, I think, five exorcisms of about eight hours each. It's kind of a grueling process. It's a bit like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen videos of someone speaking in tongues, but it's that same sort of feeling of like, out of control, I guess, possession that you see. And Dr. Vasquez found her via a priest of his acquaintance. He's also a research professor at a Catholic university in Mexico City, where, of course, there are priests too. And a priest of his acquaintance helped him find this woman who was struggling with her possession. She volunteered. So he brings her to the hospital and paint the scene for us and what happens there. He brings her to the hospital. An MRI scanner is absolutely enormous. If you guys have a mental picture, it's about the size of a room. And it's got a big long tube through the middle with a sort of motorized gurney that comes in and out. And so this woman, she lay down on the gurney. She was attached to all sorts of scanners and machines. She sort of whirred backwards into the machine. 
And in the room next door, Dr. Vasquez and the other medical participants in the experiment were watching all of her vital signs, watching the brain scans. And then this priest, whose name Father Huitlachuac, stepped forward with a purple sash on around his neck and started exercising her, which roughly means calling on God to cast out the demon. It's actually an extremely formal process with the Catholic Church. It's a very long process. And part of it is that the demons will deny being demons and will say, no, I'm just this woman. I'm not a demon. But then eventually they will manifest. Her voice will change by one account of a previous exorcism. Her eyes, the slit in her eyes turned around, so it looked more like a reptile and black flies appear, and her voice changes, and people heard the sound of waterfalls, and they conducted the whole exorcism under those conditions and watched it under laboratory conditions from the room next door. Okay, so what happens to her at the end, and what does our doctor learn? So she emerged from the gurney, the gurney word forward, and in Dr. Vasquez's words, she vomited a foul and voluminous concoction that he felt was gallbladder secretions. And then she's disappeared. We haven't been able to find her since. She's unwilling to talk to us and she's unwilling to discuss the experiment. And what does Dr. Basquez see in the readings that he took? Did he see what he was looking for or how does he interpret what the results? He saw changes within the brain during the exorcism, especially in the frontal lobe, which sort of focuses on the higher processing, I guess, the more nuanced, complicated parts of human thought live there. And he didn't have a control group. He didn't have a large group of participants with which to compare this experiment. So the answer is officially inconclusive, but he's kind of excited about it. But as you then detail in your story, in your reporting, it seems that there were, this woman may have disappeared, but there were other things that occurred after the exorcism. Yes, so this is only part one of the story. The weird experiment is, in a sense, just the beginning. Because in the 57 days surrounding the experiment, according to Dr. Vasquez, all of the personnel who took part in the experiment, all of the doc, there was a, a team of 13. There were psychiatrists and there were experts in interpreting various different signs. And there were 13 of these professionals who were overseeing the experiment. And eight of them underwent misfortunes that they then began to ascribe to a curse from the demon for attempting to see the thing they wanted to see as kind of a punishment or a curse, I guess. So Dr. Vasquez himself was hiking in the mountains and he stopped for a rest. And then when he started walking again, he found a small brown snake in his pants. You can make your own joke there. And as he was dealing with this first misfortune, he suffered a terrible fall onto some rocks and he was in serious condition, and actually he was taken to exactly the same MRI scanner to make sure his brain was okay. The priest who was involved was accused of sexual harassment, falsely in his account, by two women out of nowhere. Another lady broke up with her boyfriend for no reason. Another doctor was accused of a crime she didn't commit and threatened with jail by her own brother. And on and on and on there were computers that died when people tried to watch videos of the exorcism in, in one particularly haunting moment. The only thing the computer would do was play a video of the exorcism over and over and over again in the loop. They couldn't make it stop. They couldn't make it do anything else. That's all it would do. And so these medical professionals, they were pretty scared. And did you talk to Dr. Vasquez? Does he have any final conclusions about this? He comes from a family of shamans. He sort of is steeped in a shamanic tradition. And he grew up in the mountains his aunt is a very famous shaman who can possess people. And his view is that he doesn't know the answer. He doesn't know whether Marcella was possessed by a demon that was then cast out during the experiment. He doesn't know for sure that a curse was then unleashed, but he certainly thinks these things are much more possible than perhaps we would looking at it 
from a distance. And I have to say that when I was reporting the story, I came in with a skeptical, superior, somewhat condescending view. Look at what these silly people have done. And then every time something silly or difficult happened to me, I lost my debit card, I got norovirus, just the stuff of like, I stubbed my ankle really badly on my sofa, it crossed my mind. Is it demons? So I ended up consulting a Mexican medium who told me to wear a red ribbon around my waist whenever I was writing or reporting on the story and not to download any of the material. So I looked at photographs and video and various documents connected with the experiment. And I was told not to download them because apparently the cloud is safe against demons. So I followed those instructions. Do you have to have the red ribbon on while you're talking about it right now? Actually, I just remembered that I don't have it on. But if you would like, if you would like, I have it here. There it is. I can put it on for you. There we go. Better safe than sorry. It's all we're saying. That was exactly my view. And so I've ended up sort of unexpectedly buying into the superstition myself, which was not something I anticipated. But to me, this story is really interesting because Dr. Vasquez in his paper about this experiment and the curse that followed explicitly compared the fear he and the other participants in the experiment had of demons with the fear they had of cartels. So the story starts with a truly horrible tale from Dr. Vasquez's experience as a doctor where he saved a patient who had been shot in a cartel-linked shooting, a drive-by shooting. She was a young woman in her early 20s. She was pregnant. He stabilized her and she was on life support. And then according to his account, which we haven't been able to corroborate, the cartel called up and said, unless you switch this lady off, we're going to come into the ward and we're going to kill everyone else there. And they agreed. Someone at that hospital, which is now closed, agreed to do that. And so it was a climate of extreme fear. And he explicitly compares that climate of extreme fear with the fear of demons. And to me, this story is interesting because I discovered this paper at a moment of extreme fear in America, in the whole world during the pandemic. It was a time we were all thinking about death. It's a time where, to me, it wasn't just me becoming more superstitious. I think can't speak for you, Michael, or you, actually, but I feel most of us became more superstitious. And so that link between superstition and fear and science and religion is very interesting to me at this moment. Ashley, are you superstitious? I didn't used to be, but I think I'm becoming more so after listening to this story. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking, like, maybe I should have had a red ribbon on while we're doing this interview, but... I did you wrong. I didn't warn you ahead of time. And you're going to have to download this stuff, I would imagine, so... I'm not... No. <laughs> <laughs> Here be dragons. No, thank you. I'm going to go out and buy a red ribbon now in case I have to do any more talking about this. But it's a terrific story. And I encourage everyone to read it because it is just one of those fantastic stories that you just can't believe. So thanks for sharing with us. And we'll look forward to your next piece from us. Wonderful. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Ravi. What a great tale. Great tale well told. Yeah, boy. Just when you think things can't get weirder. There you go. All right. Well, Michael, it is the weekend. Before we go off, do you have anything at all you can recommend to us? I do. And while I await the arrival of Mission Impossible in theaters, I've got a book that's a dandy little summer read and one I think you will really enjoy, Ashley, because it concerns a grifter. In this case, a young grifter in the Hamptons over the summer. It's a novel called The Guest by Emma Klein. You may have read her previous novel where she imagined the lives of the Manson women. This book is a taut psychological thriller set over one week where the narrator, a 22-year-old escort, lives beyond her means, drifting from house to house among some extremely wealthy individuals. It's told with style and a great voice, and it's a page-turner. It's called 
the guests by Emma Klein. Okay. Well, Michael, we wish you all a wonderful week. Thank you so much for joining us. Will you please read us out? I will. And I'm glad that no more sparklers or firecrackers or bricks or M80s, just explosives, as we said here. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.